Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please join me in welcoming back to the Institute of Catholic Culture, Father Andrew Fisher. Please stand and we'll begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord God, pour your blessings upon us this night, that we might grow in faith, hope, and love, and through the intercession of Our Lady and the saints and martyrs, lead us always to love the faith and to pass on the faith to others. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, as Monica said, thank you all for coming on a beautiful night where religious ed and CCD and so many things are happening. It's a great joy to be here. When I was a seminarian, one of the parishes I was assigned to was where a young Father Pefley was assigned. And he's a dear friend, and uh, if I had known I had enough time, I would have scheduled him to juggle tonight. I know that would have brought more people out for our talk tonight. So next time I come, I will have a professional juggler here as the warm-up act for, for my talk. Uh, it's an honor to talk on the saints and the martyrs. And how appropriate that just last week you may have heard that in Yemen, five missionaries of charity, five of Mother Teresa's nuns, were gunned down. And they were gunned down literally in the house where the sisters served the sick and the elderly in Yemen. And the local vicariate, the apostolic vicariate, the apostolic nuncio to the Arabian Peninsula said that after an uh, investigation, it was very clear to everyone that they were singled out because of their Christian faith. So as you talk about the martyrs tonight, uh, please don't think the martyrs were just something that took place years ago. Certainly today there are many challenges to our faith, and we look to the martyrs of yesterday and today to help us. So let's begin. Tertullian lived in Carthage in the second century at a time when the church was under incredible persecution from the Roman Empire. Tertullian was a lawyer, he was a married man, he was also a convert to Christianity who began writing books defending the Christian faith. In the year 197, he wrote his landmark book, The Apologia. In it, Tertullian asked his non-Christian readers to please stop and notice one thing, and that is that despite the brutal killing of Christians, the church continued to grow. The Christians were so firm in their faith and their convictions that no torture or fear could break them. In fact, Tertullian points out that the courage and piety of Christian martyrs, even at the moment of their actual execution, was so inspiring that not only were the crowds converted, but even many of the executioners themselves were converted. Tertullian beautifully ends a section of the Apology by saying to his non-Christian audience that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs 
is the seed of the church. Pope Francis has said that martyrdom is the supreme testimony. Cardinal Donald Whirl of Washington, D.C. recently wrote that, quote, martyrdom is the most vivid and the most credible summary of the gospel. The death of a martyr is a proclamation, even when the victim utters no words. In fact, no words are necessary, for no testimony to faith in Jesus Christ could be more compelling. By their death, the martyrs tell the world, beginning with the persecutors, that the Christian faith is worth any price, no matter how high. End of quote. From the very beginning, the church has given special honor to the martyrs. Most were ordinary men and women, living very ordinary lives. But when faced with the option of renouncing their faith or death, they made a bold choice. They chose Jesus Christ and fidelity to the church. The blood of these holy men and women is a powerful testimony for the world to see. They teach us that there are things greater than the honors and possessions of this world. Their death is not just a death. Their death is a testimony, a proclamation to the truth of Jesus Christ and to the truth of his words, a promise of eternal life. Tonight, I'd like to speak with you for a few moments about the validity of Tertullian's observation that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The witness given by the martyrs clearly speaks to every generation of the church and to every vocation of the church. The faith of the martyrs should inspire us and teach us in their daily lives, for they are indeed the greatest teachers and the greatest catechists. But before we start, let's ask a simple question. Is it true? Could the blood of a martyr really change people's lives? Could the blood of the martyr really change hearts and minds? Someone got put to death. Did it really make a difference? Let me start by a few short examples. In 64 AD, St. Peter the First Pope was crucified in the Circus of Nero as entertainment for the pagan crowds. Both the pagans and the Christians and the audience silently pondered his supreme testimony of faith. His death inspired the Church of Rome, an infant church under persecution, to persevere and not give up. Today, thousands of people come to pray at that very spot in Rome, in a city that is no longer known as the city of Caesar and his successors, but is known today as the city of Peter and his successors. The blood of Peter was the seed of the church in Rome. In 1597, a young Jesuit brother named Paul Miki was condemned to death for teaching Christianity in Japan. While being crucified in front of Japanese villagers, Paul Miki preached the gospel in his native Japanese language. The crowds were so moved by his faith that many in the crowd wept, and others repeated the Christian prayers that Paul Miki kept saying from the cross. One young man, a carpenter getting off of work, walking into the scene and observing what was happening, was so moved he stepped forward and declared his belief in Jesus Christ and was immediately arrested and crucified along with the other Jesuits. This is called baptism by blood. The feast of St. Paul Miki and his companions every year is February the 5th. In 1646, Jesuit missionary Father Isaac Jogues was martyred in a Mohawk village in upstate New York, today known as Arisville, New York. The local tribe kept alive the story of these black robes, these missionaries, their zeal to baptize the local tribe 
and their willingness to suffer for their God. Such stories inspired the tribe that had put these martyrs to death to actually embrace future martyrs when they came. When martyrs continued to come, people of the village were baptized. And ten years later, one such child baptized in that very village where the martyrs were put to death, we know today as St. Kateri Tikawitha. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In 1927, Father Miguel Perot was a Jesuit priest arrested in Mexico City for celebrating Mass when the government had outlawed all clergy and all religious services. Without a trial, he was put to death by firing squad. The police took photos of the execution and quickly posted them around Mexico City, hoping that these would scare Catholics and people from practicing the faith. But just the opposite. The Mexicans that night went and tore down the photos, took them home, put them up in their houses as makeshift shrines, and prayed to this holy priest, this martyr, who died with arms outstretched in the imitation of Christ. When Father Pro's body was released the next day for burial, 40,000 people were there to escort it to the cemetery, and another 20,000 people were there for the burial at the cemetery. He was beatified in 1988, and his last words, long live Christ the King, became the battle cry for all Catholics in Mexico fighting for their religious freedom. Because of Father Pro and other martyrs, the faith was kept alive in Mexico and in Latin America. The blood of the martyrs is indeed the seed of the church. Tonight, with you, I'd like to do two things. First, I'd like to look at what the church says about martyrdom. And then secondly, I'd like to look at a few martyrs in particular, and actually hear eyewitness accounts of their faith and testimony by shedding their blood. And if I've done my job tonight when we leave, we'll all go home with more faith, with more zeal, to love and serve Jesus Christ in this church. So tonight, let's get started. What does the church teach about martyrs? What does the church mean when it calls someone a martyr? The word martyr is a Greek word that means witness. In the ancient world, it didn't have a spiritual meaning as it has today. In fact, it had the ordinary use word that we use it today. And that is, it was used in a court of law for someone who publicly testified to a fact that they had knowledge of or experience of. A martyr was a witness. In the New Testament, the apostles were first called witnesses, for their role was to give public testimony to all that they had seen Jesus Christ say and do. Remember that when Matthias was chosen to replace Judas, the essential qualification for the job of apostle was that he had to have been a witness to Jesus' public ministry. Acts 1, verse 24 and 25. In this way, Matthias could be with the other apostles and a man who would give authentic witness to the truth of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. When the apostles went out as missionaries, they quickly encountered persecution and death. Even when they appointed co-workers, both clergy and laity, their co-workers also experienced persecution and death in giving public witness to Jesus Christ. By the end of the first century, the church began using the term martyr or witness to apply not just the original apostles, but to any member of the church, clergy or laity, male or female, who, like the apostles, gave the highest testimony or the highest form of witness, they died publicly testifying to Jesus Christ and his church. In the early church, the title confessor was given to anyone who proclaimed the faith and suffered for it. 
However, even in the earliest days of the church, the term martyr was reserved as the title of honor for those who gave the ultimate witness, the shedding of their blood. Martyrdom came as no surprise to the church. In fact, several times in the gospel, Jesus clearly promises that some of his followers will be called to lay down their life in testimony to his kingdom. Some examples, Jesus spoke of the need of his disciples to carry their cross, to renounce themselves, and to drink of the cup from which he would drink. The church has always understood that a martyr did not go looking for martyrdom, but when placed in such a circumstance, they would be given the grace to freely embrace that cross or drink from that cup. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus promises that his followers will be asked to suffer for the sake of the gospel. But if they remain faithful, they will receive a reward of everlasting life. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward will be great in heaven. Matthew 5, 11. At the Last Supper, our Lord revealed that the apostles would indeed face persecution. But Jesus teaches that unless a grain of wheat fall to the ground and dies, it will remain just a grain of wheat. But if it dies, it will bear much fruit. John 12, 24. Now, let me pause for a moment. That's a profound image and paradox, isn't it? In the eyes of the world, the death of someone usually means their work comes to an end. They're done. They've been defeated. However, Jesus says something very different. Jesus says that when one of his followers or disciples lays down their life and fidelity to the gospel, this disciple will be victorious over death and over his persecutors. He or she will be granted eternal life and will bear holy and abundant fruit, both in front of the audience that witnesses them and also in the church for ages to come. One important thing that the church looked at during martyrdom was the relationship of the martyr and Jesus. The martyr's death was not just that they were being murdered, it's that this was the imitation of Christ, and not just an imitation, the highest form of imitation, it was a participation in the death of Jesus. In his new book to the martyrs, Cardinal Whirl of Washington, D.C. writes that martyrs are Christians who took up the cross as Jesus did. They vividly fulfill the condition of discipleship laid down by the Lord himself. They assume the role of Jesus on Calvary. And in martyrdom, the servant willingly identifies with the master and consents to dying the same sort of death as Jesus did, suffering the same injustice and humiliation. After all, imitation is the highest form of honoring someone. St. Stephen is the first recorded martyr of the church. Because of this, he usually has a special title, the proto-martyr. In the Acts of the Apostles, we hear that Stephen was a deacon who was found guilty of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and condemned to death by stoning. In the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 7, verses 54 to 60, his death by stoning is described in great detail. This is important. The first martyr is listed not just as being put to death, but his death is recorded in detail. And what's important to see is for the early church, the death of Stephen almost corresponds or parallels the death of Jesus Christ. Like Jesus, Stephen patiently accepts the sentence of death. Like Jesus, Stephen looks up into heaven and commends his spirit into the hands of God the Father. Like Jesus, at the time of his death, Stephen asks the Father to forgive those who are putting him to death. Like the death of Jesus, 
when the Roman soldier was converted by what he saw, the Acts of the Apostles points out clearly that Saul, a future convert, was a witness to the death of Stephen. In the accounts of all the martyrs, you will see always this very powerful truth. The martyr offers their life in the imitation of Christ on the cross. What you see in the Master, you will see in his followers. There is no doubt among the audience that the martyr loves Jesus so much, he is willing to imitate him in life and in death. What do we mean that the martyr teaches the faith? What do we mean that the martyr is actually part of the evangelization of the church? Today, when we think about learning the faith, what do we do? We think of books, Catholic TV channels, cable channels, right? We think of websites, we think of videos. If you're lucky, maybe your parish priest or deacon gives you a good homily and you can learn about the faith. But who are the best teachers? They're the martyrs. The martyrs. They give the best catechesis, far more compelling than any book or anyone who stands up and gives a talk. For their testimony of Jesus Christ and the faith is not written with ink in a book or on paper. It's written in their life-giving blood. To be in the crowd and see a martyr freely make the supreme sacrifice of their life and testimony to Jesus Christ demands attention, demands reflection, demands people pondering what is going on. By refusing to change or compromise their faith, the martyr tells the world and their persecutors, the people putting them to death, that God is real and that the Christian faith is worth any price, no matter how high. Simply put, actions speak louder than words. And the martyrs teach us by their actions, for their actions speak of faith that transcends every time and culture in even the greatest books of theology. Times change, but martyrdom remains the same in every age. The image of a martyr as a teacher of the faith can be seen in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. When the Catechism speaks of martyrdom, it does not speak of it in the section that addresses the saints, but in the section on the Church's mission of teaching the faith. Very interesting, isn't it? The martyrs are not spoken of in the section of the saints. They're spoken of for the church's work of catechism. Martyrdom is listed as part of the ordinary life of the church and as a factor in the fruitfulness of the church's evangelization in every age and culture. The catechism concludes its discussion of martyrs with one powerful statement in paragraph 2742. Quote, the martyr bears witness to the truth of the faith and to Christian doctrine." Unquote. In other words, even if a martyr does not have a degree in theology, guess what? The church says that they are great preachers and great theologians. Not because of what they say by their words, although some of the martyrs gave eloquent testimony. The church says they are great teachers by their action, by their faith, their hope, their love, by the very fact that they would lay down their lives and testimony they are considered experts in the doctrines of the Catholic faith. That is a beautiful and powerful statement. Martyrs speak to every generation. The church has always wanted to keep alive the story of the martyrs. In ancient times, before CNN news or people taking photos, the church would always ask those present to record what they saw and to write it down. Therefore, the faith and witness would not be lost but rather would be treasured by the church and passed on 
through the universal church until the end of time. Some of the earliest accounts of the martyrs were called the Acta of the Martyrs, A-C-T-A. These were actually the official Roman court transcripts recording the details of the martyrs' interrogation, trial, and execution. These actors were often obtained by Christians either by secret purchase, we call that bribery, or else also by when the executioners were converted and became Christians. And they presented the official witness that they had done as an employee of the state to the church. A second type of literature was known as the passio, P-A-S-S-I-O, or the passion of the martyr. These are Christian eyewitness accounts of the death of the martyr. But more than just a legal transcribing of the action, the passio also usually included theological points, miracles, or symbolism that allowed the audience to see and to meditate more fully on the death of the martyr. The passio is often promulgated by a bishop for his diocese who was sometimes read aloud at mass or also at RCI classes or gatherings of the Christian community. Several of these texts are now considered classics when studying early church history or spirituality. And these were usually really theologically charged. They were to give great comfort, inspiration to a church that was under persecution. When you read them, put your seatbelt on, because not only are they graphic, but they're also kind of like a marine recruiting drive. Stand up, let's go to work, let's defend the faith and preach the faith. Another significance of the Pasio was that it usually gave a very vivid description of the death that was used by commentators and by artists. In later generations, artists would include the information from the Pasios in honoring the martyrs in paintings, statues, mosaics, or stained glass windows. For example, thanks to the Pasio of St. Lawrence, every time we see St. Lawrence, he's standing next to a grill because he was put on a grill and roasted. Or if we ever see an image of St. Sebastian, how is he figured? With arrows sticking out of him because he was arrested and he was attempted to be put to death by firing squad of arrows, but he survived and was nursed back to health and continued to preach and was then put to death a second time, if you will. But thanks to the pasio or the stories, the eyewitness accounts, we are able to pass on that testimony, not just of their words, but of their courageous faith and death. The church has always had veneration for the martyrs. Even after their death, martyrs continued to give witness. What they taught the church did not end when they breathed their last. Because their stories were passed on and also their relics were passed on, the church was able to keep like a sponge receiving grace and inspiration and catechesis from the martyrs. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, not just in that day, but even today, as the church looks to the saints and martyrs and we study their faith. Like I said, if I do my job right tonight, hopefully you leave more excited about the faith. Their blood is still producing and watering the seeds, the seeds that you have in your hearts tonight. For example, in the early church, the anniversary of a martyr's death was given great honor. It was not a day of sadness. It was a day of celebration. In fact, the feast days of the death of a martyr were the first dates put on the church's liturgical calendar following the anniversary or the events in the life of Jesus Christ himself. These feast days were fixed on the church's calendar. And the anniversary of a martyr's death was known as the Dies Natales, or Day of Birth. That's an interesting thought, huh? 
the day of their death was called by the church the day of their birth because it was not a birth into this world by their death and suffering for Christ it was a birthday into eternity or into heaven so if you ever study the lives of the martyrs usually their feast day on the church's calendar was not the day that mom and dad brought them home or showed them off to the family it was the day that they shed their blood for Jesus Christ in the church normally on that day the day and the anniversary of their death in the church the martyrs passio was read among the early Christians and that tradition continues today when the passio of a martyr is read in the liturgy of the hours or the official prayers of the church on their feast day also the names of the martyrs were put into lists by the local church called a martyrology the churches in Rome Carthage and Antioch all had compiled lists of men and women even children who remembered at the altar whenever the church gathered for Mass. For example, the first Eucharistic prayer was used in Rome by the early church and includes the list of the names of the martyrs of Rome. That's the one we usually use, and if you listen carefully, it has all the saints' names put in there. These are all saints and martyrs that would have been known by the community of the church in Rome. Many believe that this first Eucharistic prayer was prayed at Mass in the catacombs, where these martyrs were buried. And celebrating Mass at the tomb of a martyr gave rise to the custom of today when building a church, placing in the altar a bone fragment or a relic of a martyr. The church honored the martyrs by going and having Mass at their tomb. And even today, if you will, when you go to Mass at your church and Mass takes place, we, the church, are still gathering at the tombs of the martyrs as we celebrate the Eucharist. Another honor given to the martyrs was that their bodily remains were recovered by Christians after their death and given special burials. Often their bones were buried in fine linen in a clearly marked grave where Christians could later come and pray. Today the color of a martyr is red, but in the early days of the church their bones were buried in cloth of gold or purple, which was the color of royalty, a color of honor. In early Christian cemeteries, Graffiti written in several languages were often seen from where pilgrims would come and pray at the tomb of the martyrs and even light candles or leave prayer requests at their tomb. Eventually, when the faith was legalized, great basilicas were built over their tombs, and today the church throughout the world still goes to Rome and visits the tomb of the martyrs or wherever a martyr is buried. Lastly, if the body of a martyr was completely destroyed during their execution, for example, they were consumed by fire, consumed by animal, or dismembered, Christians would seek even a small relic of their martyrdom. After an execution was over and the police or the authorities departed, Christians would usually go up to the scaffold, the guillotine, or else the Colosseum, looking for even a small relic, something to keep a memory of that martyr's faith and witness alive. They might go and, with the hem of their cloak, dip it in a pool of blood, and take home the martyr's blood. Or else they might go up to where the cloak was stripped off the martyr and take home a piece of the martyr's clothing themselves. Or even going up if they could and cutting a piece of the rope that had held the martyrs as prisoners. These second-class relics were treated with great dignity and passed on from generation to generation as a holy treasure. And they were seen as a teaching moment. Look at the rope, look at the cloth, look at the blood. This came from a man or woman who loved Jesus Christ and was willing to die for them. The blood of the martyrs inspires and teaches the church.
Well, I have a love for church history. In fact, I have a master's degree in church history. I could be here all night telling you about relics and traditions of the church, but I know you've come to actually hear stories, perhaps even to learn about some of the martyrs. So tonight, with our time remaining, I'd like to share with you the story of four martyrs, four different martyrs, and I'd like to share with you the eyewitness account of their death. Now, I always do a little caveat here because the martyrs did not die gentle, nice deaths. This is not a G-rated part two of my program tonight. So if anyone gets squeamish or anyone has children, please know that I warned you. We're going to talk about the blood of the martyrs tonight. Okay, good. The first eyewitness account I'd like to share with you is the death of St. Ignatius of Antioch. You ever heard of Ignatius of Antioch? Okay, good. Ignatius is one of the great figures of the first century church. He was the third bishop of Antioch, which was a large commercial and military city of the Roman Empire. He had been a disciple of St. John the Apostle. And one tradition holds that Ignatius was a little child and one of the children that Jesus blessed in the gospel. At age 73, he was arrested and found guilty of being a Christian while performing his duty as the Bishop of Antioch. Perhaps due to his prominence or because he was so well esteemed among the Christians, he was found guilty of being put to death, found guilty and sentenced to death, but not in Antioch, to be taken to Rome, to be put to death in one of the great Colosseums so that the Christians of the, the world would know this is what happens to your leaders and your shepherds. While his prison ship was en route to Rome, it made several stops. And during these stops, Ignatius was quietly visited by local Christian communities. These leaders were amazed to see that Bishop Ignatius of Antioch was not a sad convict on death row. He was jovial. And in fact, he would pray with them and give them homilies and encourage them. When they asked if they should help him escape, he begged them, do not try and do anything. Please, let me go to Rome and preach the gospel and die just like Peter went to Rome and preached the gospel and died. He wanted so much to preach the faith wherever people would listen, even his persecutors and the people who had come to watch him die. During his travel to Rome, Ignatius wrote several letters to the early Christians who stopped and visited him. These letters were held as treasures, for they show the depth of theology of this man and of the early church. One of these letters, his letter to the Romans, showed his view of martyrdom in his upcoming death. Quote, Ignatius of Antioch writes, Let it be known that I willingly die for God, if only you do not stand in my way. I plead with you, show me no untimely kindness. Let me be food for the wild beasts for they are my way to God. I am God's wheat and shall be ground by their teeth so that I may become Christ's pure bread. Pray to Christ for me that the animals will be the means of making me a sacrificial victim for God. The time of my true birth is now close at hand. Do not stand in the way of my birth to real life. Give me the privilege of imitating the passion of Jesus. Unquote. Wow. Many Christians witnessed the death of St. Ignatius in the Roman Colosseum. They testified that this elderly bishop forgave his persecutors and led the other Christians with him in prayer as the wild beasts were set upon them. After his death, Christians obtained his remains, wrapped them in fine linen, and quietly returned them to Antioch. There pilgrims came to pray, and many miracles were worked at his tomb. 
An account of his martyrdom was written and circulated not just among the people of Rome that witnessed it, but it became reading among the Christians all throughout the Mediterranean. Around 150 AD, St. Justin Martyr said that his own embrace of Christianity became, began when he saw martyrs courageously facing death in the circus and in the Colosseum. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Second martyr, St. Catherine of Alexandria. The Passio of St. Catherine states that she lived in Alexandria, not Virginia, but in Egypt. Around 300 AD, she came from a wealthy family and was a dedicated student of philosophy. Following a vision of our Lord, she was baptized and became a catechist and secretly was such a good catechist, she began converting people throughout the city of Alexandria a city known for its school of philosophy. In other words, she was not just converting people, she was converting the biggest minds of the day. Not bad for a recent graduate of an RCI program, huh? When the emperor came to visit, she met him, and she even tried to convert the emperor. Of course, this revealed her Christianity, and she was arrested. Hoping to embarrass her, Catherine was put on trial with the emperor present before 50 philosophers assembled from the Department of Philosophy at the University in Alexandria. They put her in, on trial in a huge courtroom with the crowds watching, and those who were the philosophers questioned her and grilled her on the stand. And there she was able to give answers in defense of the faith. What happened? She converted them, not one or two, but all of them. All of them were left speechless. All of them left the court that day without a defense or a rebuttal of everything that Catherine of Alexandria had said. Remember Jesus said, do not prepare a defense. I'll give you the Holy Spirit when that time comes. To be there without legal representation in front of the emperor, in front of the greatest philosophers, she brought them to silence. And even better, she brought them to ponder the truth of the teachings of Jesus Christ and his church. So what happened? I'm glad you asked. The emperor rounded up the judges, the philosophers, demanded that they take an oath of fidelity to the Roman gods. They refused, and he had them all put to death. They all died a martyr's death. Catherine was called back to the emperor. Now the, it's gone into extra innings or the playoffs, we'd say, in sports because now she was such a public figure. She was converting the philosophy department in Alexandria. He called her in, offered her a bribe of marriage, money, and most importantly, her freedom, if she'd only renounce publicly the Christian faith that she was now teaching. She refused. While in jail awaiting her death, she converted an estimated 200 of her Roman guards that had her, including the jailer and the jailer's family. When the priest secretly came to bring her communion in jail, she had all of the guards come and get baptized by the priest in secret in the jail. Many of them were also later put to death for their faith in Jesus Christ. Can you imagine the faith and the zeal of this one holy woman? She was eventually condemned to die on a spiked wheel. They brought her out in front of a crowd. They had a wheel filled with spikes that they were going to throw her on and spin. When they brought her out, the eyewitnesses said that she was calm, she was joyful, 
as if a bride on her wedding day. She knelt down and prayed, and as she knelt down and prayed, all the spikes, one by one, began falling off the wheel in front of the audience, one after another. It outraged the emperor. The witnesses that were brought in, likewise, were dumbfounded and put to silence. And soldiers quickly were ordered by the emperor to just take out their swords and kill her, which they did. Her body was taken away by Christians and buried in a monastery in Mount Sinai. Today, St. Catherine of Alexandria is one of the patron saints of preachers and philosophers. Whenever you see an image of her, she's usually standing or leaning next to a big wheel with only one or two spikes left on it. The others are on the ground. What an incredible story that both during her persecution, during her trial, and during the moment of her death, she gave testimony to Jesus Christ in her words and in her quiet patience and faith. The third part I'd like to talk about is actually a double feature, Saints Perpetua and Felicity. You ever heard of Saints Perpetua and Felicity? I hope so, because actually yesterday was their feast day. So if you went to Mass, you heard about it. So if the priest of your parish told you the rest of the story, it's all right, you can add to the story when I'm done. But the Passio of Saint Perpetua and Felicity is one of the most famous and well-read of all the Christian texts and Passios. The first part of it, because it's so loud, it's so long, is actually in two parts. The first part is how Saint Perpetua explains her conversion and how she was arrested. And the second part is the story of her martyrdom. As you can imagine, she couldn't write that part or she's been put to death. So one of the eyewitnesses recorded it. And there's a tradition that in that part of Carthage, the witness who later wrote it was Tertullian himself. Around 203 AD, Perpetua was a 20-year-old noble Roman woman living in a large estate just outside of Carthage. She was married with a small daughter named Vivia. Her brother became a Christian, but no other family member would convert. Remember, the church was under persecution at this time. So even though the brother tried to teach the faith or pass it on to the family, they would have none of it. However, she listened and she converted. She had three friends, Ravacus, Saturinus, and Secundulus, and her personal slave, Felicity, who would meet for RCI classes at her estate, and local catechists would come and teach the class. Because their numbers were growing, and because they began living a different lifestyle as compared to the Roman pagans at the time, fingers were pointed, and eventually, in the middle of an RCI class, the authorities came and arrested them for being Christians. They were brought to trial, and there, not only were they brought to trial and put in jail for a public trial, but while this was going on, their catechist came and stepped forward as a Christian was arrested so that he could be put in jail with them and continue the RCA class so that they could be baptized before their death. That is a good RCA teacher. <laughs> in jail, they were offered freedom if they renounced their Christian faith but they chose to remain Christians. In her interrogation, Perpetua boldly said, I cannot call myself anything but what I am. I am a Christian. In response, the Roman governor of Carthage sends them to death by wild animals during the public games in the upcoming days, 
in the great amphitheater of Carthage. That was the big thing. That would be the Nats Stadium or the Yankees Stadium. You know, that was the place where people went. The whole city would shut down for circuses. And they were to be used as examples to instill fear in the Christians. But what happens with the martyrs? They don't instill fear. They instill faith and they inspire. The Passio says that while they're in prison awaiting their execution, that the female slave Felicity actually gave birth to a baby. And the Passio tells us that a priest would come in secret to visit them. And he baptized not just the baby, but Perpetua and all the others who were in the RCI class. That's always a beautiful statement, that even if the Christians were arrested during the RCA program, the church would never leave them. We laughed earlier about the catechist who laid down his life to get them baptized, but we have many beautiful stories of men and women and others going to bring communion or to baptize those in jail. The church always knew that if anyone had the faith, they wanted to keep that faith going. Hoping to put pressure on the prisoners, the Roman governor asked that the family be brought in to speak with Perpetua Felicity and the others. In other words, if they won't listen to me, remember their family didn't believe. Maybe the family can put pressure on them. Instead, Perpetua and the Christians, when the families came to visit, would begin teaching them Christian prayers, quoting the scripture, and getting an RCI class started with their family, who are now so inspired that although at first they said no, now they were actually listening to these men and women who in jail were teaching class. And Felicity entrusted the newborn baby to her sister. In vain, Perpetua's father demanded that she renounce the faith and that because she was a woman of noble birth would not die in a circus, because that would be embarrassing to the family, and that she stopped living in a filthy jail. That was below how a noble woman lived, and she was embarrassing the family. But having just been baptized and having begun receiving the Eucharist, Perpetua said to her father that although to him it looked like a dirty prison cell, she was living in a palace, the greatest palace ever, because this was a palace where the greatest king came to dwell, and she welcomed the king when he came to dwell in this palace. Perpetua was something of a mystic, who received several visions while in jail. And when Christians would come and pray with her in secret or visit her, that she would actually share some of the visions that she was having. And many of the witnesses reported that Perpetua saw in her visions things that no one else knew and actually confirmed some of the special intentions that the early Christians in Carthage had been praying for. She actually foretold the conversion of people that they were working on or teaching, where people who had renounced the faith and left out of fear that she prophesied or she foretold would come back. In other words, no one would know the things that Perpetua was talking about except for God. And this is a further confirmation of the holiness of this woman, that she was so in tune with God that even her last hours on earth were not hours of fear or trembling, but hours of prayer and conversation with God. On the day of the execution, the newly baptized Christians, including Perpetua and Felicity, were led out before the hostile crowds in the public games. The pagans loved blood. The bloodier, the better. And as they were brought out, they were told to do what was local custom, that the Christians or anyone condemned to death would actually have to put on the clothes 
of the local Roman gods. The women of the goddess Venus, and then the men, uh, the gods of Rome. However, the Christians refused, saying that they would not put on those clothes because, if you will, that was a sign of asking for a favor from one of the gods when they died. And they said, we will lay down our lives for Jesus, the true God. We will not wear anything, anything that points to the Roman gods. The governor was so furious, he had them all stripped naked, tied to posts, and whipped with scourges in front of the crowd. Now this is important because even the pagan crowds were shocked at such cruelty because they could see that perpetual infelicity had just given birth to small children because of their bodies. And they were shocked that the governor was that cruel that they would strip and put to death women who had just given birth. And the crowds began to boo the Roman authorities. And so he had the whipping stopped, he had them put their clothes back on, and then he ordered them brought out one and then the other, male and then female. As Perpetua was being brought back to put her clothes on, she stopped in front of the governor's box and she declared, you are judging us today, but remember, one day the true God of heaven will judge you. After being made to run through a gauntlet of soldiers with large clubs, the male prisoners were tied to wooden posts and wild boars were set out upon them. However, the witnesses running the testimony say that when the wild boars came out, they stopped and sat down and listened to the Christians praying. After a few seconds, the boars got up and began to attack their keepers. And in fact, the soldier assigned to the wild boars actually was mortally wounded and died a few days later. The wild beasts were then released, and the Romans went out and began to take the Christians and put them to death. Perpetua and Felicity were brought out into the arena, and wild bulls were set upon them. The first bull charged Perpetua and tossed her on its horns and threw her to the ground. In that moment, Perpetua's thought turned to her modesty. Seeing her dress had been ripped open in two, she quickly got up, gathered the two folds together, and fixed her hair and tied the clothes around her. She did not want to look disheveled because of modesty, but also in Roman culture, disheveled hair meant mourning. If you were getting married or it's a good day, women would take care of their hair. And she said this was her wedding day. Remember, this is a day of joy for her. So when she died, she wanted to be presentable to her spouse, Jesus Christ. She tied back her hair. She went over and began to pray with Felicity. Perpetua had helped Felicity to her feet after she had been knocked down too. And Felicity was so caught up in prayer, she asked Perpetua, when do you think the beasts will begin attacking us? Perpetua pulled up her sleeves and said, don't you see the blood? They already have. The two of them were so caught up in prayer that even as the blood is being poured out, they were in conversation with God. The faith and courage of these women against savage beasts led many people into the crowd to take the Christian faith. Before the crowd, even as the beasts were attacking them, the women publicly forgave their persecutors, knelt together, held hands, and prayed. Upset that the animals were not doing their job to the two women, the Roman soldiers went over with swords to kill them. However, the passio, or the eyewitnesses say, that the sword that struck Perpetua was from a soldier who was a novice. And even after several cuts, she was still alive and praying so much so that she leaned over, took the sword, and aimed it in the right direction, and trusted herself to God as the death blow was given. 
the account of her heroic martyrdom spread throughout the church. It became what we'd say today a bestseller and is quoted among the writings of many saints in North Africa for the next four to five hundred years, including a local bishop of another diocese a century later named St. Augustine. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The last of the four martyrs I'd like to talk to about, St. Edmund Campion. Have you ever heard of St. Edmund Campion? Edmund Campion was a rising star at Oxford, gaining attention both for his studies, but also for being a public orator. Like many Catholics at the time, his family had quietly followed the new laws that severed ties to the Pope and the Catholic Church under first King Henry VIII and then under his daughter Elizabeth. At that time, the laws executed Catholic clergy and laity for continuing to practice the faith, so many Catholics quietly went along with the official state religion. Yet the more Edmund studied the Catholic faith at Oxford, the more he was convicted of the truth of the Catholic faith, and that since this was the true faith, no compromise was possible. Edmund left Oxford before graduating, fled to France, entered the seminary, and was ordained a Jesuit priest in 1578. Along with other Jesuits, after being ordained, he secretly returned to England and covertly wandered through England, celebrating Mass and the sacraments in the homes of Catholics. With the help of a small printing press, he also began publishing little pamphlets, little tracts, defending the Catholic faith. These pamphlets were circulated throughout England, including Oxford. Don't know if you know, it's called Edmund Campion's Brag but he wrote a defense of the Catholic faith and at night would sneak into churches belonging to the Church of England, even the, the Oxford Chapel, and put copies in the pews. Sometimes you'll see people photocopy novenas and leave them in the pews of the church. He did that. And even scholars at Oxford and some of the students in Oxford, they would read this and be converted. It was incredible. So many people were converting because of his writings, because of his pamphlets, and so many Catholics kept the faith alive because he in secret would go around saying Mass in people's homes that Queen Elizabeth named him the most wanted criminal in all of England. Caught while saying Mass, he was arrested and brought to the Tower of London and tortured for several weeks. His cell was so small that no grown man could either stand fully up or lie fully prostrate. Yet he never renounced the Catholic faith. Because of his fame, <clears throat> the queen actually came and had a private meeting with him one-on-one. -on -one. She personally offered Father Edmund Campion money, titles, and the office of an archbishop in the Church of England. If only he'd renounce the faith because he was such a high-profile person. If she could break him, the queen thought she could break the Catholic Church still functioning in England. But Edmund Campion respectfully declined and tried to explain even to Queen Elizabeth the teachings of the Catholic Church and why he remained loyal to the Catholic faith. In 1581, he and two other priests were put on public trial for treason, which was ultimately the charge of being a Catholic priest, being loyal not to the head of the church, which was the king or queen, but being loyal to the Pope in Rome. When asked to raise his hand in court to take an oath of testimony before the judges and the witness, Edmund Campion could not even lift his arm because for so many weeks he'd been put on the rack and tortured. With pain trying to raise his arm before the crowds, 
one of the servants came over and raised it for him so that he could take his oath. And when the hand came down, the servant leaned over and kissed the hand of the priest, which is what you do on ordination day to a priest. It was a sign of respect for the priest. Even in front of the crowds, people Catholic and those who had left the faith said, look at this holy man. They wanted to respect him as a priest. He continued to inspire even his harshest critics. The audience listened to his articulate defense of the Catholic Church, the papacy, and the priesthood. Some in the crowd during his trial were publicly moved to tears and sobbed openly, seeing his humility and his holiness. He was quickly found guilty and condemned as a traitor, and death for a traitor was being hung, drawn, and quartered. The death was vile and gross and considered beneath that of a British gentleman. But for someone who does treason, you're no longer considered a British gentleman. When the judge gave the verdict, Father Campion stood up with the other two priests with a big smile and a sign of peace, and they began singing the three of them in Latin, the Te Deum, which is a hymn of joy sung in the church whenever something important or beautiful happens. For anyone else, a sentence of death brings tears. For these, they sang the church's most joyful hymn of praise. On December 1st, 1581, Edmund Campion and his two companions were taken to Tyburn, the infamous place of public execution in London. Normally, prisoners were executed in their own clothes. You know, the British are always very, pop very proper, always very proper. But Edmund Campion's clothes were missing. Instead, he had to be executed in the filthy rags he'd been wearing as a prisoner. In those days, being taken from the Tower of London to the place of death, you were tied to a piece of wood and dragged through the city streets as people uh, jeered and yelled at you. As he was being dragged that day, it had rained for three days, he was dragged through the mud. Imagine being dragged on the ground behind horses as mud was flying up all over him. As they went by, just a few feet in front of the Tyburn scaffolding was an arch. It's still there today. It's called Hyde Park. It's called Newgate. And there was a statue of the Blessed Mother. And as he was dragged by, the eyewitnesses said that even though his arms were broken, he pushed himself up to give a salute to the statue of Our Lady as he was dragged past it, the last Christian symbol he saw. When he was finally taken to Tyburn, the crowds were huge because, remember, he was one of the most famous criminals in England. And as he was carried up the steps, many people asked for his blessing. Remember me when you're in heaven, they yelled. Campion was the youngest of the three priests and was chosen to die first. That day, the royal family and government officials were present at the scaffolding to ask as witnesses, and historians and sketch artists were there to take official propaganda. It was a major social event for London. The mudstained Campion was brought to the scaffolding and made to stand on a cart with a rope around his neck, and one of the royal officials asked him to last chance, recount the Catholic faith and you'll be saved. But Campion began to preach the Catholic faith to the crowds, and there was silence. The people wanted to hear him preach. When the crowd was calm, Campion publicly asked that God grant the queen a long and prosperous reign, and that God forgive her and all those who were putting him to death. The crowd and executioners were silent at such an act of mercy. And finally he said, I am a Catholic man and a priest, and in that faith I have lived. In that Catholic faith I will now die. If you believe my Catholic faith is treason, 
then I am guilty. As for any other treason, I am innocent. God is my witness. A Anglican clergyman stepped forward and said to Campion, Quick, pray with me in English. Remember, the Catholics prayed in Latin. The Church of England prayed in English. In other words, in a small way, even renounce your faith now. Campion smiled and said, I will indeed pray at this moment, but I'll pray in a language that both our Savior and I know so well. He began to pray the prayers of a priest in Latin. At that very moment, outraged, the royal official kicked the cart and he fell on the end of the rope. As you may know, the story being hung, drawn, and quartered, you were hung to almost dead and then cut down to be drawn out and then cut up into pieces, hence being hung, drawn out, and quartered. Public execution in London during the time was a public event that took place often, and people were very desensified to such a gruesome event. In fact, for some, it was cheap and free entertainment, including the youth. Whenever someone was hung, drawn, and quartered, usually the teenagers or college students would push their way to the front to watch because this was cheap and entertaining. And so the youth pushed their way to the front to watch. On that day, December 1st, 1581, one of the teenagers in the front row was a university student named Henry Walpole. He was so close to the scaffolding that when Campion's body was quartered, when he was being cut up, the blood exploded out and hit people in the crowd, including this young college student. Now, Henry Walpole was not practicing any faith at the time. And when he went home that day, he took off his jacket and laid it on his bed and stared at the blood of a man willing to die for the Catholic faith in front of him. Henry Walpole said he stared at it for hours, seeing the blood and thinking, what this man believed he was willing to die for. He stared at the blood for hours, pondering the faith and the witness of this man. Soon, Henry Walpole became a Catholic. And not just a Catholic, he fled to Rome, was ordained a Jesuit priest, and returned to England to go in secret celebrating the sacraments among Catholics in England. He was later arrested and found guilty of treason, of being a priest. And in a public square in York, England, on April 7, 1595, 14 years after witnessing the death of Father Edmund Campion, Father Henry Walpole was hung, drawn, and quartered as a martyr of the Catholic faith. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The story of Edmund Campion's death inspired many more vocations to the priesthood. It kept the Catholic faith alive in England. And one witness wrote that several thousand people went home and began searching and seeking how they could become Catholic or return to the Catholic faith because of Campion's execution. As a last footnote before I end, only about 75 feet from Tyburn today is a cloistered Catholic convent where mass and perpetual adoration take place every day. In addition, 50 feet from Tyburn today is Hyde Park. And on September 16, 2010, during a visit to England, Pope Benedict XVI prayed solemn vestures with 80,000 Catholics only feet away from Tyburn where the martyrs were put to death. And there, John Henry Newman, an Anglican priest, was named as a blessed for the Catholic Church, a convert from the Church of England because of his study of the Catholic faith and because of the writings of Edmund Campion and others. Let me end. In every age, the Church has martyrs, from the apostles to our current day. Remember, I started with Mother Teresa's nuns. 
These are holy men and women who have a standard or a level of faith and self-giving that should inspire all of us, whoever we are in the church. Although their suffering was great, their trust in God was even greater. They teach us to love God above all things, to never give up and never compromise our Catholic faith. They awaken in each of us courage and strength. The martyrs are our heroes, our inspiration, and our teacher. In particular, the martyrs teach us not just faith, but heroic faith. These men and women were ordinary men and women, facing the same temptations and passions that we do, facing the same anxieties of life that we do, even facing cultures that are contrary to the faith, just like we do. But by God's grace, they were heroic. They kept going and endured many challenges, even challenges they may have thought that they themselves could not do. But with God's grace, they did. Tonight, we have seen that despite their own humanity and limitations, God made the martyrs victorious and through them passed on the faith and inspired the faith. Their blood and their stories helped the church to persevere and never give up. I pray it's like that with us today. Pope Benedict XVI in his apostolic exhortation, Sacramentatum Caritas, stated, the devotion to the martyrs is not simply a love of history, talking about old times. Instead, the martyrs are relevant to us today. For most of us will not be called to be martyrs, but all of us are called to give witness with our family, our friends, and our culture. With the martyrs as our example, may you and I every day stand firm and give witness in word and in example. History testifies that in every generation the church has faced critics, suspicion, and persecution. But in every age, the martyrs and the saints have helped the church not just to keep going, but to grow. History proves that the practice of trying to put fear into the church by killing martyrs never works. Just the opposite. The blood of the martyrs makes the church in every age and land grow stronger, more numerous, and we're united. Tonight we have celebrated the most persuasive witness of all, the most convincing and convicting witness of all, the willingness of a Christian man or woman to die rather than betray or give up their faith. The martyrs are indeed our teachers, and their testimony is the light that will guide all of us on our way to heaven. Amen. Holy saints and martyrs of heaven, pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you for coming to us. I'd like to know who was, if you know, the youngest, the age of the youngest martyr and the age of the oldest martyr. Do you happen to know? Not all martyrs are known to us because some of them died in a public square, some did not. So that's why we have like All Saints Day, for example, which covers all those who are in heaven, both saints and martyrs. The youngest, we might say, are the holy innocents because they are men and women who died because of Christ. And so every year on December the 28th, we wear red, the color of martyrs, and honor them. The oldest martyr, I, I do not know. Certainly, we have a list of martyrs because the early church kept those, but that is not the exclusive list. There are many martyrs that are not known to history. Okay, we have one coming in from online from Al in Canada, and he asks, a friend of mine 
When she was on a guided tour of the Roman Colosseum, the tour guide denied any Christians were martyred there. A little research into it led to the discovery that it is their official position. Have you heard of this? I have not. In the city of Rome, it was not just the Colosseum, it was also the Circus Maximus. It was also the Circus of Nero. So when people say that they were taken to Rome and put to death in the Colosseum, whether they're referring to the famous Colosseum we think of today, or sometimes referring to the other circuses. The Romans had a, a famous phrase that to keep the people of Rome calm, you needed bread and circuses. And so what happened a lot of times is that was the sport and entertainment they bring in the Christians. So you had the gladiators, they had flood, sometimes of a mock navy battle, but also the Christians were put to death. That's why Peter was put to death in the circus of Nero, not in the Colosseum. As a small footnote to history, that when you study the Circus of Nero, which was on the Vatican Hill, where he was put to death, it was also used for chariot races. And in the midst of all the dirt being flown up with the charioteers running around, they had a large obelisk in the middle. So you'd always know when to turn because you could keep your eye on this tall obelisk. And that's the one in St. Peter's Square today. So historians and tour guides will always tell you that if you stand in St. Peter's Square, more or less you're standing in the area where the Christians are put to death, the Circus of Nero. And if you look up at the obelisk, you're probably looking at the last thing Peter saw when he closed his eyes to this world, because that was in the middle of the Circus of Nero. Since I actually have a question for you, Father, since you've brought relics this evening, can you speak a little bit to the veneration of relics for non-Catholics who may be watching or who even Catholics who may be curious about it? Why do we venerate relics and that whole thing? Sure. We always try and show honor to people. If you go to Arlington Cemetery, people don't run around and picnic and play Frisbee. You show great honor and respect. The Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, hopefully we've all had a chance to visit. You know, when you go and visit Mount Vernon and see the tomb of George Washington, usually people come and are very respectful. So we always try and respect people, especially those who have died, who have lived virtuous lives. For the saints, it's not just virtue. Saints is their, their teachers. They died for the faith. And so we showed, as I said, respect even in the earliest days that when they died, we would show respect to their bodies and bear them in a way where people could come and pray there, asking for their intercession. We believe as Christians, death is not the end. When you die, now you're alive in heaven, especially for someone who's lived a holy life, that there's that promise of immortality. So the saints, we can pray to. We ask for their intercession. We pray to them, and they, like anyone would, you ask someone to pray with you for a special intention, they're praying for that before the throne of God in glory. So for us to show, relic to the, uh, show uh, honor to the relics of the saints, we go back to the earliest days of the church where we show them honor and to go visit or to pray before a relic of a saint, we're not worshiping a piece of bone, we're actually asking God, give me the grace to imitate this saint, this martyr. And to that saint you're saying, please pray for me now from your place in heaven. Help me to follow your example. In fact, that's why we usually are named after a saint, either in baptism or also in confirmation, because the saints are our teachers, and when we have the relics, it's a very tangible way. Remember I said that even if it was a rope or a piece of cloth, it was something you touch and hold on to, you make, it makes you think of that person. I'm also a big baseball fan. And if I ever go to a ballpark, I try and get an autograph from a baseball player. Now, that is always, every time I look at it, it reminds me I met that player and makes me think of that player. 
when we go to the relics, it reminds us to imitate or to follow the example of that saint. Um, I was wondering about the the really ancient stories of the earlier smarters, especially Perpetua and Felicity. How is it with their being so old that they've existed all the way to today and that we know they're true as opposed to legend and all that? Sure. Uh, going back to what I said during the talk, the, the first eyewitness accounts were actually from the Roman police. They were called the Acta of the Saint, and they were typed up in Roman format, like official uh, today, you would be arrested or arraigned, and the court reporter would be there taking notes of it. So we actually have those which we know are written in the way from the Roman police. For the eyewitness accounts, many of them were written by an eyewitness who then passed it around and a local bishop would give an imprimatur to it or allow it, those witnesses to be read at mass or else also at RCI classes. But the most simple answer to question is that the people who heard these stories, they knew the people who wrote it and they were there. Because remember, they didn't want to lose the story. So the moment it happened, they would go home and write it down and then the local bishop would know what happened and give authorization and it was being used. So we look at it today and we would say it was written on the spot or the day after by these people that to the early church were known to be credible witnesses. Hi, Father. Um, obviously, there are way more martyrs than there are days of the year. So is there any particular process to determine what saints are put onto the Roman calendar and which ones are just almost celebrated in passing, not necessarily on that calendar as much? Sure. The, to piggyback, there are more saints than we know of. In fact, that's why every year on November 1st, we have a feast of all saints, right? All of them. I work at a hospital. I get called into the NICU sometimes and baptize a baby who dies a few hours after birth. That baby is full of grace, not a stain of sin. Know what that means? There's a saint in heaven, right? Thank God. So there are many saints in heaven. We could not fill the calendar. As I said in the talk, that what happened was as the local church, either in Antioch or Rome or someplace else, would remember the anniversary of the death of the martyr, their birthday that was called, they put it on the calendar. So that's why even local churches today, uh, the Church of the United States, for example, the U.S. Bishops Conference would put out not only saints that are celebrated throughout the year, but also local saints. So, for example, January 4th is the Feast of St. Elizabeth Ann Seton. They don't necessarily celebrate her feast in Africa, in Korea, or in Ireland. But the Church of the United States would because there's that memory of her here. So... In our calendar that we look at, we have certain universal saints who are on the calendar, but we also have saints who are local to us as well. And for us, that's an obligatory feast, whereas other places is optional. But if you ever look at Butler's Lives of the Saints, the go-to authority on saints, you'll open it up, pick a date, and you'll see like 20 saints listed. And you can celebrate any of those saints on that feast day. Or I'd even add, do you know that different religious orders, like the Jesuits, the Dominicans, the Franciscans, have a sacramentary jest of their own saints and martyrs? So I remember sometimes I've sat down to do evening prayer with friends of mine who are Franciscans, and they'll start doing the prayers for a saint I've never heard of before, because it was a Franciscan missionary who died in the 13 or 1400s. And to their order, the family keeps that faith alive. So on the church's universal calendar, there are saints. And also in the local church, local regions, there are particular saints too.
Father, um, you mentioned St. Paul Miki earlier, and uh, this incident I've always found particularly instructive because it seems to me that the Tokugawa shogunate was pretty successful in wiping out the church in Japan for, for centuries thereafter. Uh, are there instances when uh, holy martyrs and persecutions do not serve as the blood of the church, as it were? Uh, or am I misconstruing the situation? No, uh, with Paul Miki, certainly the, the Japanese government was suspicious that as all the Christians came in, they were certainly trying to, in their mind, take people away from ancestor worship, which was the tradition of the people. The faith was born in Japan and kept alive in secret, as is the case in a lot of countries. So you would never say the faith was wiped out. The faith actually continued. As a footnote to history, and of course my love is history, so I got lots of footnotes, the town he died in, which is Nagasaki, is also where Franciscan missionaries later came, and because of the work they did, were allowed to continue the faith. And it was there at that Franciscan monastery, just outside of Nagasaki, that St. Maximin Kolbe came and taught and preached before going back to Poland just on the eve of World War II. So literally from where Paul Miki and the companions lived and preached and died, the faith was kept going. Later other saints were there and still today if you go you can find the church in Japan alive. So the point of the martyrs is that even at that bleak moment when you could say that it was, it was the termination of their life and job and the, the Romans had won, but then what happened to Peter where he died? Today people don't go and pray at the tomb of Caesar, <laughs> they go and pray at the tomb of Peter. And that's the heart of the church. So never judge by appearance. Remember, what God does is he takes the faith and witness of the martyr and uses it for his glory, not our standard of glory. Uh, Father, you mentioned that um, Ignatius of Antioch, when he was traveling to Rome, would have visitors who would ask to, to have him pray for them. And I would imagine that the martyrs, before they were put to death, people came to them and asked to pray for them when they came into their glory. Do you think that's how it started, that the Catholics started asking the saints to intercede for them? I know, I think a lot of Protestants wonder, how come Catholics are always asking saints to intercede for them? But it seems like if you know this person's going to be put to death, you know this person's going to be a martyr that you would ask him to pray for you and then continue even after their martyrdom. No, absolutely. I think that all of us have met holy people. We've been in the presence of someone that just, we knew God is at work in that person's life. Whether they're a martyr or not, we've all met people like that. And hopefully they've inspired us and helped us. Certainly I could name many people that I've met, parishioners or people I know that have just been saints. Ask them to pray with you ask them to pray for you. It's very important. You know, Jesus says, whenever two or more gathered in my name, I'll be there. And certainly we believe that death does not end a person's life. They live on, we pray, in heaven. So people who would meet some of these saints, some of these uh, prisoners for the faith, knew were very holy and upright people. And they asked them to pray for them, and to intercede for them, both in this life and the life to come. So the church has always done that not only on the human level of someone you respect and you can see God's at work in their life, but also knowing our teachings of death. And that is that when you die, you come before God. And if we're in a state of grace and we've been open to God's grace, we pray that we'll be found willing and capable of the kingdom, that that place of glory to die a martyr's death, 
than that they would be able to intercede for us. For many Protestants, it's just the focus we have as Catholics to say is that I don't go and worship the saint. I go to the saint because in this life and now in eternal life, they've been one with Christ. They've been filled with his divine life. And I pray now that that saint is interceding for me, taking my prayers to Christ in glory. So that tradition goes back to the earliest church because, like I said, that they would take the bodies, they'd give it a great burial, they would go and pray at the tomb. Even their bones or a piece of cloth, a relic, was something that could remind us to imitate that saint and to feel a closeness or an intercession with that saint. Okay, thank you very much. Almighty God, you speak to us through the example of the saints and martyrs. Tonight, may we listen not just with ears, but with hearts and soul. May we love our faith, the faith you've given to us through the church and the apostles. May we treasure the faith, and we pass on the faith to others. Make all of us this night go home with seeds that have been watered by the example and words of the martyrs. Through Christ our Lord, amen. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.